This is Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show tonight is The Radical Democracy of Henry David Thoreau. Our music tonight comes from John Cage's Six Melodies, performed by Annalie Gall on violin and Klaus Lang on the electric piano. My guest for this program is Branka Arsik, professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University. She joined me via Skype earlier this week. What may seem surprising as you listen to tonight's show is the way in which Thoreau's understanding of death and life can inform our own considerations of what it means to live by an ethics of inclusion and acceptance of differences, and to eschew what is given to us politically and socially as measured, hierarchical, and standardized forms of knowing. All this is revealed in Arsic's latest book, Bird Relics, Grief and Vitalism in Thoreau, which takes the death of Thoreau's brother, John, as its entry point into the radical nature of Thoreau's thinking. Because of this, she focuses primarily on his neglected first book, A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, which was a kind of memorialization of the Thoreau's brotherly relationship. Bird Relics discusses the radical way in which Thoreau related mourning practices to biological life by articulating a complex theory of decay and proposing a new understanding of the pathological. Arsic is also the author of books on Emerson and Melville. We jump in by considering the notion that Thoreau was a misanthropic egoist who faked his so-called self-reliant stay in a cabin on Walden Pond. I do realize that there is this understanding of him as this kind of egoist sitting somewhere um, in a little cabin, isolated, asocial, apolitical, or not political enough, or political enough, but not political in a good way, not very progressive, uh, kind of a libertarian at best. All of that is something that in fact cannot be corroborated even by a very fast, not close uh, reading of Wald. And I'll say um, uh, in a moment briefly why I think that, but because I do think that those are readings that cannot be corroborated, I don't think that they can be called readings at all. And so why they're there and why it is that people think uh, the way they think is uh, now raising a question that has less to do, I think, with Thoreau and more with ideological investments of people who read him. Hmm. Walden itself begins by Thoreau famously saying uh, that he's going to give account of himself. Which one of us is doing that uh, or does that ever? Whoever, uh, even of Thoreau's uh, critics, takes others so seriously that they would, uh, in fact, say, okay, I'll give you an account of who I am and what I did and what I'm doing, that to begin with is a political and a social gesture. So Walden is the book that opens by this claim, look, I'm not alone. And I'm going to answer to this call. There were people in the village, in the town who were asking what I was doing. I'm going to tell you what I was doing. 
the whole book is therefore premised on that kind of ethical hypothesis or, or Thoreau's claim that I can never do what I do without giving an account of what uh, I'm doing to the community, which I'm the member of. Um, that's just a little note, you know, that's how famously the book opens. But throughout the book, he goes on to um, explain his kind of art of living that was never asocial. There is a moment when, the, when he explicitly says in Walden that, you know, sometimes he's accused of like not being isolated enough or his isolation being fake because he would go to the village where he talks about that in Walden. And he says why? And he says that, um, that, that his experiment of being isolated from uh, the community would fail if he did not know what was going on in the village. He is depicting what he did in a very complex way that is never asocial and he never claims a total isolation. So the challenge for us would be to ask the question why that is so, why he never wanted to be isolated and why he thought that a complete immersion um, indifferent immersion into the communal is also uh, something that is ethically questionable, rather than to just dismiss him as asocial or apolitical. And finally, one last remark, that he was a misanthrope. Um, that's the most curious kind of refusal to read and understand Thoreau that I'm aware of, because that really is obscure, that there's no even a false premise that would corroborate that because he's a person who, as I document in my book, really cares about his friends and his mentors and his fellow townsmen, not to mention animals or, or natural life or trees or plant life, and, but also somebody who, um, in fact, was really very politically active who was helping runaway slaves to begin with, right? He wasn't just writing about that. He was actually doing it. Um, why is that misanthropic? Let's talk a little bit about uh, Walden in particular as the book and that we know him by, I think, more than anything else, and misread him by, I suppose, the idea of the, again, as we said, the cabin on the lake. Uh, you just mentioned that generally uh, the cabin itself, building the cabin was a social experience, um, even taking the the materials uh, to, the, to the woods, taking them from a shanty as well. All these things are social experiences in Thoreau. He borrows an ax to begin because all things begin in borrowing. Um, so your, you know, your points about that in Walden are already sort of, uh, they're already expanded in Walden in itself, the idea that he's a social uh, writer. Um, the, the book, A Week on the Concord of, and Merrimack Rivers, again, which I think forms a, a, large, a large part of your, your argument here, has to do with, uh, would you call it a monument to, to his life with his brother? Uh, is monument the wrong word? Or is it something like it, uh, that that book has its, uh, its sort of genesis in trying to grieve, uh, to try to understand grieving, to try to understand the loss of his brother? I think in and of itself, it's a great book, and it plays a huge role in my argument for several reasons. I was, I was trying to um, un unfold uh, Thoreau's understanding of life, and, and that naturally, I mean, so I had to start from, from the week, but also because it's not that often read, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of strange, taking into account just 
how canonical a writer Thoreau is that they, that and that he published only two books in his lifetime and then one of them would not be read that often or very carefully. So it's a beautiful book, beautifully written. Thoreau is a really a great stylist. Perhaps from that point of view, Walden is um, um, a, a more complex and uh, aesthetically better uh, executed achievement. But what I found out, um, kind of doing what I call the archaeology of the week uh, on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, is that a lot of passages that found their way to the book um, were kind of um, obscured. The meaning of of them was obscured by the way Thoreau incorporated them in um, the logic of the book. Um, And so I found myself kind of deciphering them. But I was guided by the argument I was trying to make about the way um, Thoreau mourned for um, his brother who dies in 1842 and my claim was that um, it's not just that he was mourning, because in fact, in the final analysis, my interest in his mourning wasn't biographical or personal, uh, or at least not only. Um, that was interesting, but I, that would not be enough for me to write a book um, a, about it. So what I saw in his mourning was one that he kind of um, came and through precisely writing the week to formulate a uh, a theory of mourning that is most of the time, in fact, to my to my knowledge, was always overlooked, was never acknowledged. There is a lot of awareness um, and talk about how people uh, mourned in in antebellum America, but it is surprising that no attention was paid paid in that context to to Thoreau. Um, And in fact, people talk much more about how Emerson mourned for his uh, son Waldo, which is interesting in and of itself, but he does not, uh, but Emerson never came up with 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 the theory of mourning, um, which is what Thoreau does. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is Doug Storm, and I'm speaking with Branka Arsik about Henry David Thoreau's radical conceptions of death and life, which she details in her new book, Bird Relics, Grief and Vitalism in Thoreau. What I wanted to do is to basically unearth that theory of mourning that was uh, formulated very cryptically in in three letters he writes to three different people immediately after his brother dies. Um, But in fact, um, my claim is that a week is more than a work of mourning for his brother, more than a performance of mourning, more than a practice uh, of healing or self-healing through writing, which is an argument that has been advanced, and there's nothing wrong with that argument, but it's not all there is to it. So my argument is that there is, in fact, a um, that that book um, formulates <clears throat> in a very complex way um, this theory of mourning that he had cryptically uh, formulated in these three letters that he writes after after John died. That was my initial um, investment. I just wanted to figure out how that theory of mourning worked. But something was wrong with it, you see. The, the, the more I was going into that theory, the more I was encountering a certain contradiction because his theory of mourning for the dead 
led um, almost almost systematically in all of the instances I registered it to some sort of talk about the beauty of life. And beauty, not in aesthetic sense, like it's all nice, but beauty in kind of ontological sense, life always makes it. There is no death. And so I was thinking, what is, what is this man talking about? How is it possible to mourn and yet to say, well, but there is no death. And so um, step by step, I was led to, in fact, research his, his philosophy of life which is why um, I pair in my subtitle the, the experience of grief in, in Thoreau and the theory of vitalism that he actually comes up formulating as a, as a result of his theory of grieving and his practice of grief. Well, you, um, you start, uh, well, I guess you almost end with the fact that uh, Thoreau, uh, his first published text was an obituary. Uh, in 1837. So his first published text is an obituary, and you talk a little bit about sort of the anonymity of that particular uh, obituary and, and in general the anonymity of of ordinary life in some sense and how extraordinary life is and how we overlook the extraordinary in the ordinary, I suppose, and how, in a sense, Thoreau is trying to um, to make these points, you know, that... that that life is extraordinary, that the presentness, the, the us in it, the, the body in it, the, you know, uh, is what's extraordinary. Um, it's, it's an interesting unfolding. We, you know, it sort of flies against all of our understanding of history of, you know, I used the word monument earlier, right? Of everything that's monumental to us is singular. We name it, we praise it, we march to it, we, you know, we salute it, we, we, we cele- celebrate it with, with things. And at the same time, it's the anonymity, it's, the each, it's each of us um, that, that's important to throw. It's interesting that this is one of the things that, that he be- almost begins with, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that you know, leading to John, uh, John's death as well, and and sort of he's already, I guess, percolating that idea before before his brother dies. One of the things um, that he was always kind of cautious about and, and concerned about was this insistence on precisely identity and. And naming as the way of appropriating. I recovered one cancelled passage from the week where he says uh, the question that he raises is the question of like the status of the famous um, um, people that made history. And so he talks about Newton and um, Isaac Newton. And so his question is, well, did he come up with the thought we celebrate him for? Or were there so many anonymous people, scientists, philosophers, um, including even uh, his neighbors uh, who were kind of making pie for for him or um, who enabled um, his thought? And isn't it maybe that in what we call like um, historical persons, we actually should instead be regarding them as simply common names? for a group of anonymous people who at a certain point um, in time enabled one of us to achieve something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so his question is, what about all of, all of those people who we never name? 
and who in fact do what they're asked to do. They're like political, they're citizens, they they do everything that, that they can for the community and their names are never up there in the air. Um, is there a way to think both about them and history in such a way that anonymity gets recognized. So on the one hand, that would be the question of recognition of the anonymous. And and he does um, that at very many levels throughout his life. He starts, uh, which some people think is bizarre, with this obituary for a woman, old woman he never met. He wrote a, an obituary for her and he didn't sign himself. So it wasn't about him, right? When you, when you go through his journal, this enormous pile of, of words, and a lot of people, a lot of commentators remarked on the fact that the journal is almost anonymous, that, that Thoreau rarely writes about himself, that it's far more difficult to figure out the man on the basis of his journal than, say, is the case with Emerson's journal. Which is true, but there is that anonymity, and yet in contrast to it, so some people say there is, it's all about nature, or it's not all about uh, nature, it's, a lot of it is about nature, but a lot of it is about other people um, who he meets, uh, either his friends, uh, talismans, or he registers deaths of a lot of people who he might or might have not known, and he turns his journal into a kind of a vague cluster of obituaries to those anonymous people, which is his way, I suppose, to to register their contribution to the political and the social. And that gesture, I think, is also very political and has to be taken into account when we think about first politics or or his um, relation to the communal and, and the ethics of the of the of the communal. It's time for a break. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. I'm speaking with Branka Arsik about her new book, Bird Relics, Grief and Vitalism in Thoreau. When we come back, we'll think further about death by considering Thoreau's obituary for an elm tree. Our break music comes from John Cage's Six Melodies. Stay with us for more Interchange on WFHB. Welcome back. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. You just heard music from John Cage's composition, Six Melodies, performed by Annalie Gall on violin and Klaus Lang on electric piano. 
Our show tonight is about the radical thinking of Henry David Thoreau, and our guide to that thought is Branka Arsik, author of a new book, Bird Relics, Grief and Vitalism in Thoreau. We closed last segment thinking about anonymous life that Thoreau memorializes in his journal by writing obituaries about ordinary people of which he had no personal knowledge, but he also wrote an obituary for an elm tree. I have attended the felling and, so to speak, the funeral of this old citizen of the town. I was the chief, if not the only mourner there. I have taken the measure of his grandeur, have spoken a few words of eulogy at his grave. How have the mighty fallen? Its history extends back over more than half the whole history of the town. Since its kindred could not conveniently attend, I attended. Methinks its fall marks an epoch in the history of the town. It has passed away together with the clergy of the old school and the stagecoach which used to rattle beneath it. Its virtue was that it steadily grew and expanded from year to year to the very last. How much of old Concord falls with it. The town clerk will not chronicle its fall. But I will. I think that obituary is kind of relatively well known and um, it appears in his journal, uh, but it should be seen, I think, as a part of a larger picture of how he understands life. So what I was trying to suggest or do in my book is to move the, the focus of our understanding of Thoreau from the ecological. And as I said explicitly, I didn't do that because there's anything I, I could possibly critique in that uh, approach. It's a, it's a very profound approach and it gave us a very deep Thoreau. But what I wanted to do is to ask a following question. What happens if we when we think about Thoreau's understanding of the natural, in, instead of naming that relationship in terms of ecological, what would happen if we pay attention to the fact that he calls it life? And what kind of an understanding of life would come out of his relation to the natural? And so what I found out is that when he says, and means it literally, that all life is one, and that there are no interruptions, in other words, that life is this material force that is constantly in the process of individuating itself. And sometimes it's a tree, other times it's a flower or an animal or whatever. Um, what, is, what does it really mean and what follows from, from there? So one thing that follows from there is what I call his radical democracy or that de radically democratic approach to life, which led him to all kinds of protectionist and conserva conservative um, acts, um, so including protecting a tree or protecting a, um, a bird species or whatever. Some people might get concerned by the claim that all life is one and that we are kind of participating in sharing literally, uh, not symbolically or religiously or theologically, um, but literally are of the same stuff. And uh, some people might, might get concerned, I know that because when I was kind of reading my uh, parts of my uh, book before it was published, some people would ask me, well, but does that mean that he was actually denigrating the human? Was he saying that the tree is the same as the human being and that we should be paying as much attention? Is, is that a form of his misanthropy? And the answer to that is no, um, because... He never said a tree um, is the same thing as a, as a man. He, he never collapsed all the differences into the dumbness of, of some sameness. 
that wasn't how his mind was working. He was a man that was kind of attentive to um, minute uh, differences. So the answer to that is no, he didn't denigrate the human, but he elevated the non-human. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that changes a lot about, you know, in terms of how we um, approach the living. And so one of the points that, that I think he was trying to make was precisely that. Once you figure out that all kind of minute little tiny things, little insects are the part of the same stuff, then, then your attitude towards them changes, which does not mean that you can go around um, not paying attention to humans, but just paying more attention to non-humans. Right, right. Um, so uh, let's, uh, if we can, before um, before we move beyond the uh, maybe the John aspect or the grief aspect, you do note um, a term perpetual mourning. Do you want to try and uh, describe what perpetual mourning is, or what Thoreau was trying to get at? Yeah, um, the phrase for, and it's the phrase is actually the key uh, concept in what I see as his um, as the theory of grieving that he formulates. And it appears in, in one of those letters uh, for the first time in, that he writes um, after his brother John died. And it appears in a very weird co- context. I mean, we know just how intensely he grieved for his brother, right? Famously, he developed the symptoms of the lockjaw from which John died and kind of really thought that he was going to die uh, uh, with John or after John or the intensity of his grief was uh, so strong that he was kind of on his way of dying himself uh, out of grief. So there's no question that, yes, he did He did mourn intensely. And yet in that letter, he writes to Lucy Brown and he says, well, but this grief is only partial and it's not perpetual. And for us humans, is not, it kind of is not possible to mourn perpetually which he seems as almost unethical, the fact that we somehow move on uh, and go ahead after experiencing very intense um, losses. And then he says only nature, in fact, has the right to grieve perpetually. You know, taking into account that he, after John died, wrote with extreme difficulty, and he wrote only these three letters to very close friends, to, to Lucy Brown, to... Isaiah Williams into Emerson, and in all three of them, he entertained this idea of uh, the unethical aspect of the personal or private um, partial grief, and advanced this concept of perpetual mourning, and in the first letter, he says only nature has the right to mourn, uh, to grieve perpetually. In In the third letter to Williams, he says, well, maybe under certain circumstances, the man could mourn perpetually. Then I asked myself, well, what can that possibly mean to mourn perpetually? I took that question very seriously because, as I said, he writes with difficulty or doesn't write at all after John died, and yet he writes three times on three occasions, and this phrase appears and reappears, so something he's serious about it. So I had to take it seriously. And even more strange is how, what does it mean that only nature has the right to mourn? Uh, In other words, what does it mean that this material life, natural life, everything we see from vegetal life to animal, to to all all of the material life that he sees um, around him is in some sort of mourning? 
that is not, and I think that's very important to emphasize, it's not any type of, say, quasi-romantic personification, like, you know, some sort of ode to dejection or like the um, reflection of his own private grief that he then projects um, onto the natural world. No, he, he actually is uh, establishing a clear distinction between a private grief that he's not projecting onto the nature and the natural life as seen as an, as an operation of grieving. And once I started reading his understanding of life and nature as this kind of ontological rather than psychological operation of grieving, everything kind of came into place. I, um, I would say both his theory of grieving, which is very strange and radical because it does not pay a lot of attention to the benefit of the survivor, but worries about the lost ones, and also his understanding of the natural, which once one understands it as the operation of grief, loses its, in fact, romantic aspect. What we are kind of used to think about Thoreau's thinking about nature, that is that it's sublime and that it's beautiful and it vanishes pretty quickly uh, once you see it as the operation of grief that is coping with accommodating loss. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is Doug Storm, and I'm speaking with Branka Arsik about Henry David Thoreau's radical conceptions of death and life, which she details in her new book, Bird Relics, Grief and Vitalism in Thoreau. Uh, you mentioned ethical throughout, and I think that part of the the interest that really sort of drove uh, my growing enthusiasm for the book is that it seems to be a kind of corrective, uh, if it can be, maybe that's not exactly the term you would use, but an attempt to to correct the ways in which we know things. Um, The epistemological argument throughout that we we need to try to reset uh, and find new ways to understand how to know or new ways of knowing. And that seems to me the, the greatest aspect of this particular book of yours is that it tries to reframe that knowing. Thoreau as a, as a guide to knowing, uh, using a different group of scientists who were also knowing in similar ways. But those are scientists that most of us, if any, would have not heard of or have forgotten by now, right? But the names that we know are the names of those who have perhaps misled us. <laughs> you know, the errors that we're living through uh, come from the names we know, Cuvier, Agassiz. Um, you know, these are, are still, uh, I guess, famous names, even Audubon, Linnaeus. Uh, the Audubon stuff is interesting, too, the idea of freezing death in, you know, with wire frames and, and only being able to see life in its death form. Thoreau follows a different track entirely, a different track even of Western science, that there is Western science that knows better, maybe. Thoreau is a radically original thinker. And I think that one of the things I was trying to do is to demonstrate just how original and coherent his philosophical proposition is. But as all um, original thinkers, he was influenced by other people and he was an avid reader of, you know, contemporary science, I would say, as well as philosophy. And so what, what I have figured out was that the emphasis, when we contextualize Thoreau's thinking, 
uh, is put on other people like Cobier and Agassi, and, but it's not um, it's not often, even though it's known that he knew all of those scientists that I um, work closely on in in my book. Uh, there's not a lot of attention paid to establishing this kind of intellectual genealogies and histories. And one of the things that my book does is that. It's kind of a, an archaeology of Thoreau's thinking. On the one hand, um, I, I reconstruct Thoreau's um, understanding of life and kind of his very original reading of uh, vitalist science. But while doing that, I also kind of offer a reading of a kind of intellectual context, scientific context, um, in Boston and Cambridge um, in, say, around 1840s, um, and to offer this kind of analysis of, scientifically speaking, what was going on uh, at that point in the history of American uh, scientific thinking. Um, and what I found out was that things were very complicated, in fact, and that there was a subterranean kind of approach to the question of life that was, first of all, pitched against uh, the catastrophists, such as uh, the Cuvier and um, his disciples, the interesting thing about it is that because it was pre-Darwinian, it enabled those people to think about life in a series of very wild ways, to even entertain seriously the idea of bodily transformation or metamorphosis. And I found it fascinating, not of course scientifically, but philosophically and ethically. Of course, there's no metamorphosis um, of a human into a bird, but so the question is, what can we do with that today, um, philosophically or ethically? However, I think it's very important to stay with the historical context and to understand, to insist on, on the fact that it's pre-Darwinian, rather than tracking down what is it in those people's uh, minds or theories that uh, foretold, as it were, Darwin, and to measure their success or importance on the basis of just how close they came to Darwin. Rather than doing that, I think we should insist on their difference and the fact that they're not Darwinian and see what emerges out of that difference, because I think that that difference was not simply scientific, but also also profoundly ethical and political, and that's one of the arguments I'm trying to make throughout my book. Yeah, so go ahead and, and try to uh, take us into that political and ethical space then. It's not, you know, once you start thinking about Agassiz in particular, maybe, and, and the ways in which uh, we classify things, the way in which we put fish in, in, in multiple categories, or the ways in which we put plants and then put them in boxes and, and put them on museum shelves, and then and give them names and and freeze them in some way. It's uh, it's pretty telling uh, how that becomes an ethic and uh, a kind of practice in which we uh, create. Uh, perfect forms in some sense, or ways in which we try to get to the best thing. Agassiz in particular is an easy one to choose because he was so um, outspoken in terms of his ideas uh, that obviously had a religious cast too, that the, you know, the white Northern European male was the progressive uh, top of the heap in a sense, that, uh, that that's as close as you could get to being uh, godlike in some sense. Uh, and, you know, when you talk about difference and you talk about the political pro project that is about difference, um, that's why where these vitalists come in 
and really sort of show that that's a whole uh, more, uh, I guess, democratic way to conceive of of life generally versus the categorization and uh, generalization and standardization that we're we're still in the middle of right now. Out of that very simple premise, um, simple like uh, on a surface of it, that all life is one, and that while there are differences, no difference should be taken in hierarchical terms, right? Mm-hmm. Two uh, consequences, politically speaking, followed. One was more. One, one is more general. And it's related to kind of Thoreau's and, and their um, kind of very democratic understanding of life and the proliferation of life forms and the treat, treatment of uh, life forms and can be summed in the following way, that regardless of the level of complexity of living beings, all living beings, by, by the mere feature of being alive, right? Um, solicit a certain um, ethical behavior. So, in other words, that how advanced or complicated an, an organism or life form is does not suffice for any hierarchical ordering. That's what I call radical democracy in Thoreau's understanding of life. One can translate that into like everyday ordinary human life, that principle, and it would um, still work beautifully um, because it would tell us that regardless of how complex or not humans are, they're all absolutely equal. So there's this impulse towards radical kind of equality um, that motivates this treatment of life. But more specifically, when when one takes into account that he claims that all life is one. What does he claim by that? He's claiming, he, he claims that there was no polygenesis, that in other words, uh, God did not uh, create forms of life in different moments and in different ways. Um, so uh, it's, it's monogenetic, as it were, understanding of life. And another consequence, and, uh, when he says that all life is one and all the same, he, by the same token, is uh, saying specifically regarding the humans, all humans are created in the same way. Um, In the context of biological discourses that started to emerge at that point, and Agassi was one one of the people involved in those discussions, where polygenesis uh, argument was employed to kind of formulate precisely very racist arguments uh, and to establish quasi-scientifically, of course, the racial hierarchies and taxonomies. What Thoreau is saying is that, well, yeah, there might be an obvious difference in races, but differences are not hierarchical, and all life is one, meaning all races are absolutely equal, right? Um, so, so his understanding in the context of highly charged racial debates that actually led to a racist uh, formulation of racist ideologies on the basis of this kind of natural sciences discourses, what Thoreau is giving us a tool for scientifically, as it were, based anti-racist discourses. And that's something that has not been emphasized enough, I think, when we think about Thoreau's politics, we typically think about John Brown and the passive resistance um, idea 
all of it is, of course, uh, very relevant for understanding of his politics. But my additional claim is that we really must start paying serious attention to his understanding of life in or- and, and his biological discourse, as it were, in order to understand his politics. It's time for a break. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. I'm speaking with Branka Arsik about her new book, Bird Relics, Grief and Vitalism in Thoro. When we come back, we'll ask Arsik why Henry hates museums. Stay with us for more Interchange on WFHB. Welcome back. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. You just heard music from John Cage's composition, Six Melodies, performed by Annalie Gall on violin and Klaus Lang on electric piano. We return to my conversation with Branka Arsik about grief and vitalism in Henry David Thoreau. We close the show with Arsik's assertion that Thoreau's understanding of life stands in opposition to any conception of disability and that it absolutely negates any conception of eugenics. But first, I asked Arsic to consider one of Thoreau's most often repeated opinions. I hate museums. There's nothing so weighs upon my spirits. They are the catacombs of nature. One green bud of spring, one willow catkin, one faint trill from a migrating sparrow would set the world on its legs again. The life that is in a single green weed is of more worth than all this death. They are dead nature collected by dead men. Very simply put, they, they represent um, a freezing of becoming. They're kind of snapshots, um, a standing still, um, arrested motion. And therefore, they're, for, for Thoreau, they're just simply epistemologically inaccurate because they don't give us things in process. Um, that is to say, as they are, they don't give us anything. They give us abstractions. And that is his big, big problem with museums of all sorts, from natural history museums to art museums. He also had, um, I argue, a kind of a vitalist uh, understanding of art and poetry and um, aesthetic form. Thoreau is somebody who, in resisting this kind of freezing of uh, life as a process, that is to say, in order to really get to the truth of how life is and what it is and, and how it operates, he also systematically resisted generalizations of all kinds of sorts that, that he saw as abstractions. And so there's this kind of, to me, really very telling moment in this kind of little um, short exchange that, that, that he had with, with Agassi. He sends him 
a bunch of, um, of fish, pickerel, and then he heard that Agassiz thought, well, you know, I mean, uh, I did not know of that fish. And, and Thoreau so, uh, writes back and says, well, it's not clear to me, did you, not, did, you, did you not know about all of them or only one of them or which one of them? So to me, the, the example is telling because if there's 12 fish in front of him, then each one is absolutely unique. Uh, we cannot even generalize as far as to say, oh, I see a common trait, uh, you know, that uh, running through these 12 specimens. There is, in fact, there are no specimens. Every, everything's absolutely unique, which is why, and that is, and that is another moment where the ethics of his vitalism comes to the fore, I think. Because everything's unique, Right? Uh, because precisely there are no classes, uh, taxons, because it's impossible to come to anything that's generalized or general or abstracted. He would claim that everything's absolutely single. And so the loss of every single specimen, as it were, is absolute, is an absolute loss. Hmm. A death of a single pickerel even if the species is not endangered, is somehow an absolute loss. It cannot be recovered because everything's absolutely unique. And that's where I see an explanation of the reason why a vitalist like Thoreau, who claims that in, a, in an absolute sense there's no death, would also be somebody drawn to such deep uh, mourning and grief because everything's so unique that every every loss is an absolute loss in a sense. Right. It's a, as you say, it's an, a, a supremely ethical stance to treat people and creatures, uh, beings in that sense, and so be attentive to their, their life as well as your own. To be attentive is probably his middle name, right? Thur- uh, Henry, yeah. Henry Attentive Thoreau rather than David. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, that's, uh, I think, a key issue and part of the, the ways in which you, uh, I guess, help us understand the, the, again, the social aspect and how we can learn to be um, better to each other in some sense through trying to see things as not standardized issues, as not generalized ideas of how we should or shouldn't act or be. There's a, a pretty interesting chapter, too, on, on sound and hearing and how hearing is vital to Thoreau as well. What I'm interested in that particular instance that you're mentioning, um, and that is hearing or listening, is his experimentation that I claim is kind of quite, or was kind of quite literal, and that is the possibility of somehow literally true through the physicalness of, of the sound waves connecting with other minds and other people. It sounds very weird, <laughs> and it is very weird, um, because in, in those couple of instances that, that I describe, it's, it's an instance of listening to a music box and, um, and, a, and a tune uh, together with his brother, where he's kind of trying to figure out whether it's possible or not to kind of become one, like literally, whether two minds can be confused into one, thanks to the transmission of kind of sound waves, and that thanks to the fact that the, the hearing or the ears are kind of more open organs that allow the external reality physically to enter us, such, such as, for instance, 
the cases when then the wave, the sound waves physically enter or affect our, our hearing organs. So what I was interested in uh, in that particular um, instance was this very strange, very weird um, experiment that he's enacting. In other words, figuring out whether he can, uh, whether two people can become one. That's happening as John is dying. That enterprise, the, 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 the idea of whether the two can really become one, in fact, never, I think, really uh, left him. And one of the major aesthetic, as it were, devices that he contrived in the week on the Concord and the Merrimack Rivers is this kind of collision or confusion of two brothers, um, often into one. The whole aesthetic kind of uh, practice that he enacts later on is just a continuation of this very bizarre experiment. I, I call it bizarre because he took it so seriously and so literally, and he really we have those notes in his journal where he kind of says, oh, kind of, can we, if I do something with this music book, can we really become one? Um, can something out of my brain be transmitted to yours and affect your brain, like literally? So in that sense, I think hearing was really relevant for him. But I would say the sight also remains hugely important for him. And the touch also, we don't, we are not accustomed to think about Thoreau as a tactile person because we are accustomed to think about him as an egoist, vidron, and, you know, a tech, being tactile would also defy, defy the boundaries of a personal or individuated body. Um, my general claim would be um, that his investment in what is sensuous is always in the service precisely of defining the boundaries of, the in, of an individuated body. Hmm. Um, so that even those practices of perceiving and paying attention should be taken into account uh, when we talk about the question of the individual in Thoreau. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is Doug Storm, and I'm speaking with Branka Arsik about Henry David Thoreau's radical conceptions of death and life, which she details in her new book, Bird Relics, Grief and Vitalism in Thoreau. You hit uh, on uh, another major theme there, with, uh, and we've talked about it throughout uh, already in some sense, but the, the literal... Uh, understanding of Thoreau or Th- Thoreau's use of of words as as literal uh, acts or things in themselves, in some sense, and how uh, the the metaphorical has uh, has a, uh, again been a, a way we've sort of been led astray from thinking about life and and being uh, as it is in itself. Can you help us understand the way metaphor perhaps has led us astray, and how Thoreau tries to get us into that space of a literalness? Yeah. Well. You see, that was um, that was a very big decision I had to face um, in order to even start thinking about Thoreau. And I think every reader of Thoreau has to make that decision, by which I mean the following. Um, and I start the book by, by that claim, by saying that there's so many weird things going on in Thoreau all the time. They, they never stop. And being isolated in... Uh, a cabin on the Walden Pond is the least weird of all, <laughs> right? right? Um, so there, there are moments when, when he, you know, spends hours looking at a fish and thinking to himself, well, when am I going to start talking like it? And so what happens uh, with 
a, a massive amount of sentences like that. What do we do with them? When he talks like very famous instances, for instance, in Walden, when he talks about the clay becoming generative of life or the loon that's famously like, you know, doing all kinds of things. So the question is, how are we going to read that? And I, I said to myself that if I were going to read it, there, there are many great readings of many of those famous uh, instances in, in Walden and but they are metaphorical. So the loon is typically taken to be as the me metaphor of our self uh, that is unstable, that is divided, uh, that um, uh, it represents the otherness in us that haunts us, which is possible. Um, everything's possible once we decide that what he's doing is that he's using metaphors. But there is a question for me there. If he, what he's doing is that he's using metaphors. Why does he need nature for that? I mean, he can use any kind of metaphor. Does he really need a loon and why? So I said to myself, you know, there is one problem with met metaphorical readings, and that is that metaphors can be metaphor of anything. They, that can, they can be metaphor of what you want them to be a metaphor of. So the question for me was, okay, what happens if we take him from the beginning to the end, literally. If he says, I wanted to become a fish, I go like, okay, you really want to become a fish. What does it follow from there? Uh, the loon is the loon. Uh, it's just a loon. Um, it's, just a, it's just a bird. Um, and so if it does not represent anything, if it simply is um, a being rather than an allegory of another being, then what does that mean for us? And, and uh, for me, the, the beauty of an intellectual challenge also of reading Thoreau was that this kind of disciplinary norm that I imposed on myself, he really means it. He really means what he says, and you have to stay with the literality, literalness of, of his claims. And I think that often generated um, kind of different approaches to famous passages yeah. in Thoreau. I think too uh, again part of your political project is is um, um, you you mentioned the the various vitalists as well who are trying to understand uh, death uh, and disease and disease as being uh, what life is as much as anything else that it's not that there's a perfect health. Uh, again, a, a way in which we stop trying to yield this idea of the perfect that has, uh, as you say, a hierarchical better thans uh, along the way, but rather that uh, pathologies are life as well. And uh, I don't know if you make, uh, if that's the understanding that galls are a pathology of plants as well, but they are they are a kind of bloom in, in Thoreau as well, a kind of flower. He's acutely aware um, of the fact that um, life is illness. Uh, and sickness, and and so I argued that he really radically, and that's also another instance when one can detect his politics within his theory of life. He kind of goes into quite some detail to to argue that that what we call pathological, in fact, is not pathological because pathological um, exists only on condition we understand something as non-pathological, that is to say, as normal. And what he's claiming is that what we claim is pathological is equally normal as anything else, and that there is no standard, as it were, of health or, or perfection in biological life that should or can function as a standard. 
against which we would then define something as precisely sick or disabled or, or pathological. So when I think about the politics that's ingrained in that understanding of life, I think about the fact that Thoreau would never ever call anything disabled, any form of life. But to the contrary, even the sick life for, for him is the sort of life's ability um, to live. So to kind of fast forward that argument, say 70 years ahead, and to come to discourses, uh, in, uh, biological discourses in Europe, say 1930s, most obviously Nazi Germany, right? All of those discourses that, that kind of disqualified certain lives on the basis of their being mm, not perfect enough or disabled would be absolutely uh, impossible on the basis of Thoreau's theory of life. Um, so that is one of the reasons I think that we should um, uh, go, go back and read Thoreau's understanding of life from that political point of view also. Right. Eugenics would not be possible. Is not possible on the basis of Thoreau's. Uh, Thoreau's theory of life is a radical critique of any kind of type of eugenic discourse. That's all the time we have for the radical democracy of Henry David Thoreau. My conversation with Branka Arsic. Her new book is Bird Relics, Grief and Vitalism in Thoreau, published by Harvard University Press. Arsic is a professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University. Next time on Interchange, Graphically Radical. I'll be joined by radical historian Paul Buell. As Derek Seidman writes in Counterpunch, there's probably no one in the world who knows more about the history of American radicalism than Paul Buell, a former member of Students for a Democratic Society and a disciple of C.L.R. James, Buell founded the journal Radical America, as well as the Oral History of the American Left Project. But what brings Paul Buell to our attention is his work as editor of graphic treatments of moments in radical left politics, from Rosa Luxemburg and the Wobblies to Jesus and John Connolly, the graphically radical Paul Buell, next time on Interchange. This is Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Board engineer is Jonathan Richardson, and Joe Crawford is our executive producer. Another from John Cage's Six Melodies takes us into the Jazz Menagerie. Coming up next, right here on your community radio station, WFHB.